Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Fearless Flyer. Uh, this is episode 30. Uh, it's doing ground stuff, licenses, ground training, sim checks, ground school. I'm James. Uh, joining me today, as usual, is Grant. Hi, James. We're going to be having an interesting chat about the simulator checks. That's what probably most of this is about. And so you'll get an idea of what's involved in a simulator check, the buying your simulator check. So, yeah. So just quickly, in, a, in the last episode, we talked to a former cabin crew member who was a cabin crew trainer and also a very senior purser at the airline that you work for, really to do with what is involved with cabin crew training, the on-the-job sort of training, and, well, how they help passengers who are scared of flying. Yep, that's right. And that was interesting. It was nice of them to be able to take their time to join us. So in this episode, we're going to have a look at the background stuff for airline crew, focusing on the pilot's license that ensures that airlines conform to expected international civil aviation standards. We'll talk briefly about the pilot medical, and then we'll go into the format of the biannual simulator checks for pilots, and we'll finish up talking briefly about what a line check is. A little bit of background. Standards and recommended practices of personal licensing were first adopted way back in 1948 as part of the ICAO Convention from discussions in Chicago in 1944 at the mm. Chicago Convention. And basically, this sets out the minimum standards for personal licensing and covers the likes of engineers, cabin crew, and probably others such as air traffic control officers, dispatchers, and aviation medicine specialists. Other documents covered aspects such as details that flight training organizations must adhere to, types of training, including simulator standards, and medical requirements for license holders. Yes, that's right. So that's going back a long way away. And incidentally, the first pilot's license or certificate was issued way back in 1909. So there was a format or a standard set even back then, but you're talking about 19. 44, these discussions where they tried to harmonize it throughout the world to set some sort of standard. So these standards are set as guidelines for individual countries to adhere to. As a result, there is a significant amount of initial training for a pilot joining an airline as the airline must ensure that the pilot is up to that standard. Yes, and also throughout the time employed by the airline, the pilot has to go through a significant amount of tests and checks every year. Other license holders, such as aircraft engineers, air traffic control officers, and cabin crew, also go through initial and ongoing training in order to maintain their licenses. But for the purpose of this episode, we'll look solely at pilots' licenses and what has to be done every year to keep their license current. So let's just talk about these licenses and what is involved in them. In episode 23, we chatted about pilot training from the beginning up until getting hired to an airline. Now we're going to have a quick chat about what is involved in maintaining a pilot's license once a pilot is established with an airline. Okay, so firstly, let's do the medical stuff. So firstly, uh, every year we as pilots are required to undergo a thorough medical check. The initial medical for a professional pilot's license is rather arduous and the ongoing yearly medicals, they're not as painful, but they're still thorough. The AME, which stands for Aviation Medical Examiner, he or she is a doctor. They'll check things like eyesight, not only for distance and close-up, but also color blindness. They'll check hearing, blood, weight, blood pressure, to name a few items. And in addition to this, at certain medicals based on age, there are additional checks like ECGs, audiograms, and additional checks from one's blood samples. That's uh, the medical stuff. 
do you have to do ground school stuff as well? Yeah, we do ground school stuff. Uh, we do a crew resource management refresher every year. This is basically where we discuss human limitations and uh, communications, not only human to human, but human to how we integrate with the aircraft. So we'll have an episode along the line dedicated to the subject of crew resource management, as it does have a significant impact in reducing the number of aircraft accidents since the CRM training was mandated as a subject many years ago. Yes, so that's CRM. We also do another day on aircraft technical aspects, uh, discussing technical elements of the aircraft and how we operate it. And we look at past incidents to discuss the what, how, and why, or what could have been done differently. In some cases, what was actually done right in order to have a positive outcome. So you also have to do a simulator training and testing. How many times do you have to do this a year? We do a simulator twice a year, and we're required to spend two days in the simulator being tested. So that's four simulator sessions a year. We call this uh, PPCs, uh, Pilot Proficiency Checks. There are different names for them, recurrent training, operator proficiency checks. But in essence, they're all similar depending on the region or the regulatory authority. Do you have your four simulator sessions a year? What's involved in these simulator sessions? So let's look at one of these checks that occur over a two-day period every six months. Most country regulatory authorities require, as part of their check for the pilots, to demonstrate proficiency in the worst-case scenario. In general, this would be a maximum weight takeoff and low visibility with an engine failure at the most critical time of the takeoff. You have to climb away, uh, run the checklist and return for landing, but say due to cloud, you can't land and you have to miss the runway. We call this a go-around and you'd be doing a go-around on one engine in a 20-engine aircraft or three engines on a four-engine aircraft. And then you'd come around and you'd manually land the aircraft. So there's a minor scenario there. Uh, yeah, I do understand though that the industry is slowly moving away from this sort of stringent requirement, which uh, used to be mandated as part of the six-monthly sim check. And now it's sort of going towards a more evidence-based training. So what is this new sort of evidence-based training, or EBT for short? Yeah, these courses have been designed in accordance with the International Civil Aviation Organization and the uh, IATA recommendations for current training. The main difference between a traditional sim check and EBT can be summarized from the International Civil Aviation Organization manual on EBT. And I'll let you say it. I've written it down for you here. So have a go at reading that. This is what they said. Quote, it is impossible to foresee all plausible accident scenarios, especially in today's aviation system, where its complexity and high reliability mean the next accident may be something completely unexpected. EBT addresses this by moving to pure scenario-based training, to prioritizing the development and assessment of key competencies leading to a better training outcome. The scenarios recommended in EBT are simply a vehicle and a means to assess and develop competence. Mastering a finite number of competencies should allow a pilot to manage situations in flight that are unforeseen by the aviation industry for which the pilot has not been specifically trained for. Yeah, that's right. So there are so many permutations to what issues we could face in an aeroplane. And obviously, we couldn't train for all those. But what they're saying is the 
the way that we handle and communicate with the aircraft and one another and assess, et cetera, et cetera, will affect the outcome of how we deal with the situation. So these principles of EBT, which are included into the courses of the simulator, are competency-based training, a foundation of flight path control, focusing on the threats as identified by industry data, scenario-based training, in-seat instructions, pilot intervention, and the issue of startle and surprise. As a result, the courses in these airlines are being designed from baseline data from the aviation industry. So what is an example uh, of the concerns from the industry at the moment? Yeah, a big one is stabilisation criteria, and this is an airborne gateway where we have to be fully configured. So that is with the landing gear out and the landing flap set, the aircraft on speed and all within the limits of selected speed to plus 10 knots of that selected speed. Picture the aircraft's correct and the power is appropriate for that stage of the flight. And the aircraft must be on the correct glide path and tracking the runway centerline at this stage and all the checklists for landing must be complete. So that's an example of industry data that they're getting feedback to reduce runway overruns. And by meeting all this criteria at the specified point on the approach, which is 1,000 feet or three nautical miles or five kilometers in most airlines, this ensures that you guys can focus solely on the landing. Yes, that's right. And therefore, we can monitor any deviations without distractions. It also means we're effectively in a slot to land because we're stable. It means our touchdown point and thus stopping distance is guaranteed and hence it reduces runway overruns. Now, if anything changes below this 1,000 feet and we destabilize out of these parameters, we simply perform a go-around or a missed approach. So that's a good example of why you now use evidence-based training. Can you give a two-day sim session example that incorporates past mandatory items and a bit of EBT? Okay, sounds like a good idea. Uh, the actual simulator sessions are generally over two days, as I said before, and each day we are in the simulator for three to four hours. The session will start with a one-hour brief in a classroom by the examiner on the simulator with questions about aircraft systems, memory items relating to aircraft limitations and checklist items, company policy and procedures, and then we brief what we're going to be doing in the simulator. So as I said briefly before, an example might be in day one, we start at the holding point of the runway for a maximum weight takeoff and low visibility like fog. Uh, during the takeoff, we might have an engine failure that will occur at the most critical time. And then we've got to decide to stop or go. Generally, it occurs after we've passed our, our stopping point. So it means we've got to go. We must continue the takeoff with the engine out. And the priority is to fly the aircraft and get on with the engine out navigation of the aircraft, which might be different to what air traffic control was expecting from us. So we'll talk to ATC when we get a chance. So um, in the reality, you're likely not to hear from the pilots because we're doing what we do in the sim. We're flying the aeroplane, we're navigating, we're talking to air traffic control. In other words, our priority is to fly the aeroplane. So back to the simulator session, we've had this problem, we're flying, navigating, talking to ATC. Now, once we're safely under control and climbing and heading in the right direction, we'll run some memory item checklists for the engine. And then we'll generally come up with a we plan. And our plan will be something like, do we return? Do we divert? Do we dump fuel? So we've got lots of decisions to make. And we want to make decisions based on the most 
safest outcome for the aircraft. After all this, we'll finally get to talk to you, the passengers. It's not that we haven't forgotten or don't care about you. We're just simply prioritizing our workload. Now, let's come back to the scenario. We might have to run through quite a long checklist. And in this example, we've decided to jettison our fuel down to the maximum landing mass and return to the departure airport. So we set the aircraft up for the approach and we go on to start the approach with the engine out and we get to our minimum altitude where we're supposed to have seen the runway, but we're still in cloud or say the instructor examining us has left another aircraft on the runway. So now we must perform a go around. Remember, we're doing this go around or missed approach with an engine not working. The weather then improves and we come back for another approach, which we have to fly manually because the autopilot has now stopped working. And this time we managed to land. So this has taken around 30 minutes in the simulator to perform, which is probably the reality of what would happen in the air as well. Maybe a bit longer if we've got to jettison a lot of fuel. Now, the other pilot who is monitoring gets a go as the pilot flying, but this time there will be a different engine fault, and we perform the task again with some different scenarios thrown in. At the end of this, we may now practice low visibility landings. In essence, we're landing in fault with different faults occurring on the approach or the landing phase, which we have to react to immediately by either continuing or going around. We also practice taxing around a near zero visibility. We may perform some non-precision approaches with startle effects on the approach. And examples of that could be like landing lights going out, wind shear on the approach, landing instrument deviations, or aircraft faults such as hydraulic or brake or flat failures. And bear in mind, we came back right at the start of the conversation. We're talking about stabilization criteria. We need to be everything looking good at that stabilization point. So if we have any of these other problems, our reaction will be to either make the decision to continue and deal with the problem after landing or, if necessary, go around. That was all what you do on day one of your sim. What about day two? Okay, so day two may consist of um, some EBT, and the position might start, say, for example, halfway through the descent to an airport, say at 15,000 feet, and we might not have a bit of equipment working properly, like an air conditioning pack maybe not working. It's just a little sideshow there for a distraction. We could get another aircraft miss a clearance and require us to avoid them using the TCAS because they were getting too close to us. So these little distractions, and they do happen in reality, and we might be planning to land on a shorter runway of an airport, which has a wet runway and a thunderstorm's approaching from, say, 20 miles away. So we set up for the approach. But once we select our flaps and we start moving them, say, to the halfway position, they get stuck. So this now affects our landing distance at the airport, because not only are we landing faster due to less flaps, but there's a wet runway we're landing on, which reduces our braking action. So we need to recalculate to see whether we can still land, or maybe we need to divert to another airport and bear in mind, we won't have much fuel. So there's lots of decisions, rules to apply, and it all must be performed in a safe and legal manner. So after this exercise, we might be put up in the cruise and we lose our pressurization system, which requires us to perform a rapid descent uh, issues in the rapid descent, such as the terrain below, avoidance of other aircraft, and ensuring you have your oxygen masks deployed and crew coordination between the two pilots. 
all whilst wearing an oxygen mask must be performed correctly. And it's not easy wearing an oxygen mask trying to communicate, I can assure you of that. So at the end of the sessions, we do a, a debrief and we, uh, and if we pass, the examiner will sign our licenses and say we've met the requirements and our license is then revalidated for another six months. So hopefully from that, you get sort of an idea of what goes into a simulator session uh, over those two days. And obviously it's quite an involved activity that has been described as stressful, uh, intense or other similar adjectives because there's literally an infinite uh, number of scenario faults that could be thrown at the pilot. Yes, that's right. And the simulator scenario that I've just described incorporates the regulatory engine failures at the most critical time of the flight and also incorporates EBT, such as the flaps getting stuck when landing on a short, wet runway. But like you say, James, there's a huge amount of scenarios that could be thrown at you. And they're also throwing a lot of startle stuff at us and the aeroplane impinging upon our airspace is a startle factor. You're in the middle of doing a checklist. The next minute you've got to perform another maneuver because an aeroplane hasn't followed a clearance. So that's all being implemented into the industry. And you'll see the industry's become a lot safer because of it. Yeah. And just one last thing we've talked about, uh, sim checks. What about line checks, uh, which is simply a standard passenger line flight? with a standing crew as such and what are line checks yeah so every year we do a line check and the jump seat the seat behind the two pilots is occupied by a line checking pilot who just sits there and observes unless there is a safety issue the line checking person will not say anything he or she will debrief the crew on the performance at the end of the flight having said that if we did have a real emergency we'll definitely now use the line checker as a resource Yeah, so that, in a brief nutshell, is uh, the ground stuff that pilots have to go through as a pilot license holder to keep their license and the annual line check requirements. Did you want to add anything? Oh, exams. I forgot to mention exams. We have to do exams as well, technical exams. Anyway, that's uh, paperwork. But uh, yeah, no, that, that pretty much sums it up in a nutshell as to what goes on. There's a good example of the SIM check, what's involved there. Yeah, so that's all I could think of. So in the uh, next episode, that is episode 31, uh, we'll be discussing aircraft accident statistics. And we'll be having a look at the main issues that lead to accidents and how these are mitigated. And we'll discuss how the evolution of aircraft has enhanced aircraft safety. Then we'll delve into aircraft accident statistics from 1958 uh, up until 2021. And then just finish up discussing a few what-if scenarios and how uh, you, Grant, as a pilot, reacts and like receive these scenarios. That should be an interesting one. Yep, that sounds good. Let's have a chat next time, and thank you, everyone, to your ears for listening. I wish you all a wonderful day wherever you are, and from James. Yeah, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you again next time. See ya.